what these tests don't tell you is what the back what the person did with the bacteria did they clear them or are these bacteria still lurking in them Last year on the podcast, we talked about a team of authors who are questioning the prevailing wisdom about latency in TB infections. They were suggesting that people usually manifest the disease quickly instead of being in latency, which in turn throws the number of people infected with the disease around the world into question as well. Well, now they're back, and this time they're talking about how we test those people for latency. In the studio, I'm joined by Lalita Ramakrishnan, Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Cambridge, and Paul Edelstein, Professor of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. We also have on the line from Canada, Marcel Baer, Professor of Medicine at McGill University. Lalita, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Paul, welcome to London and into our studio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And Marcel, welcome back to the podcast. And thank you for inviting me. This isn't the first time you've been on the podcast, (laughs) as I said. Um, The last time you were here telling us about another analysis that you've done, where you were suggesting that the length of time that TB can be latent for might be shorter in uh, quite a few people than, than we've than estimates would uh, suggest. So could you very quickly take me through what was in that analysis? So what we were referring to in that article was the incubation period of TB. And the idea has been that TB has a very long incubation uh, period that can go for years and years even, and decades. And what What we had shown in that analysis was that, surprisingly, the incubation period of TB is much shorter than people think. It was in the order of months to maximum two years with a very uh, small tail of people who got disease beyond that. And that was really the gist of that analysis, to say that most people who are going to get TB will end up getting TB much sooner after they get infected than was previously thought. Mm. Yes. And uh, that the way you've done that analysis is all set out uh, in the earlier podcast, and I'll link to that so people can go and find it easily. Um, but that was challenging, a kind of established paradigm within the world of TB. What was the kind of response to uh, to that analysis? I think uh, people were quite comfortable with the analysis that most people manifest TB early. And they said, oh, you know, good for you that you figured this out and these data look pretty good. But they, what they said was, but how do you know that all those people who got infected with TB once as evidenced by the fact that they still have a positive immunological test to TB. How do you know that those people will never get TB ever in their life? How do you know that they're not, there was still this worry that that remaining um, population 
that had once become infected with TB might still remain walking time bombs for TB. And there was a feeling that we had not really addressed that adequately with the analysis that we had done before, where we said that most people get TB early. And, and the example that was brought up was that people who are immunocompromised may or are often at higher risk of developing TB with the immunocompromise. One example would be an antibody against tumor necrosis factor, which is commonly used to treat diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or um, Crohn's disease. Mm -hmm. And it's known that people who get this drug may develop tuberculosis more uh, at a relatively high rate. And so the argument was that this proves that in people who are infected with tuberculosis, once you reduce their immunosurveillance or increase immunosuppression, that they will develop TB. And this shows, therefore, that everybody is capable of developing TB once the immune system is altered. Hmm. And we're going to get into that, I think, in a little bit. But I want to sort of pull this back. So you've mentioned a little bit about uh, people who are uh, thought to be testing positive um, for latent TB there. How do we actually go about doing that at the moment? There, there are two tests for detection of TB immunoreactivity. One is a skin test. It's known as a tuberculin skin test or MAN2 test, and it involves injection of a mycobacterial, uh, purified mycobacterial antigens that um, then people who are infected develop a area of swelling of the skin several days later. So that is the tuberculin skin test. There is a blood test that measures the body's or the cell's response to tuberculous antigens by forming interferon gamma. And this is known as interferon gamma release assays, sometimes known as IGRA, I-G-R-A assays. And importantly, they're these are both immunological assays. That's the kind of key bit to this argument. Correct. These simply tell you that the person testing positive was once infected with the bacteria and mounted what is called an adaptive immune response to it. Inasmuch as when you get a vaccine, you mount an immune response to it. It's the same principle. What it doesn't, what these tests don't tell you is what the back, what the person did with the bacteria. Did they clear them or are these bacteria still lurking in them? And the wide untested assumption is that the bacteria are lurking in the majority of these people, albeit unlikely to cause disease. But nevertheless, there's this foreboding that, that the person still could get disease at some point. Hmm. And that is a very uncomfortable feeling. And this is the kind of, as I said, the, the crux of your argument here. And as someone outside the world of TB, outside the world of medicine, I'm a biochemist, not a, not a doctor, um, kind of 
clawing back through my memories of uh, of immunology <laughs> at university, I was like, that is, that's how vaccinations work. We expose someone to an attenuated or a part of a, a virus or a bacterium. They mount an immune response. They keep the memory of that going for a while. Um, and so it seems when you're, when you're, uh, analysis came uh, across my desk and I looked at it and I was like, but that seems really obvious. Has no one else pointed out that the thing that we use to to test for uh, latent TB might be testing just for this cleared bacteria, something that's that's just the immune response left after the infection is gone? Yes, certainly. And the question is, what fraction of people just have immunologic memory with no viable bacterium in their body capable of causing disease versus those who have um, continuing infection with the capability of developing disease. We know that these skin tests and the EGRA assay have a very low positive predictive value. In other words, just a, a less than 5% or so of people who are positive in a general population will likely go on to develop tuberculosis. Mm. So in that way, it's been, it's been acknowledged. Um, but even still, the concept is that a very large fraction of the world has continual infection with disease possible at any time, given sufficient immunosuppression. Mm. And the, uh, so if I can just add to that, the, the problem is that we simply f have felt that we don't know how many people who get infected with TB can clear it versus harbor it indefinitely. So in the absence of that knowledge, the assumption has been that if you test positive, you are currently infected with the bacteria. Precautionary and, principle, I suppose that's yeah. kind of... And I think that is what the, 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 the main crux, the crux of our analysis is really um, this realization that there was a way to, to answer this question hmm. by looking at the, the natural history of people who get immunosuppressed to ask if they get TB uh, or not. Mm. They and I want to get into that in just mm -hmm. one second, but before that, is the, you know, you talk, you say that there's this immunoassay immuno for, um, for the presence of, of an immune response to TB. In someone who's latently infected, is it possible to get, I don't know, a sputum sample, culture that, use PCR, anything else to, to actually identify the infection, not just the results of the infection? Well, well, the definition of, of latent tuberculosis has varied over the last um, uh, several centuries. But in general, what that means is that clinically, the, these people do not have evidence of tuberculosis of the disease. And so there are no microbiologic tests that would detect the organism. And in fact, if a microbiologic test detected the organism, then 
by definition, they have the disease and not simply the infection. So how did we get to the place where, where this is the, the, the way that we've tested for latent TB and, and used it in all of our kind of epidemiology and, and modeling and things? It's my interpretation that when Robert Koch discovered the tubercle bacillus, this enabled two different fields of tuberculosis research to open up. There were now microbiology labs that could look for the bacteria, and there were now immunology reagents such as tuberculin that could look for immune reactivity to tuberculosis. And it seemed that the microbiologists started to look for latent bacteria. And in that sense, they were now switching from hidden bacteria almost to dormant bacteria, because latent can mean in other fields of science, uh, dormancy, such as buds in the winter, they reactivate in the spring. So microbiologists have looked with culture and then they've used PCR and genetic methods to look for these so-called sleeping bacteria. And that has led uh, one group of people to think that latency is bacteria that are lurking in your body in a sleeping state and that there's a biological switch, that they're sort of in the off condition, but if appropriately stimulated, can come back on. And that would appear to be consistent with the current nomenclature that the opposite of latent TB is reactivation. On the immunology side, having the reagent allowed people to look for evidence of immune reactivity, and then it was discovered that people with immune reactivity were more likely to go on to develop tuberculosis. But whether that mean, meant everybody with immune reactivity had bacteria in them uh, wasn't shown. Um, but using, I suppose, a precautionary principle, it was assumed that if some of the people have live bacteria in them, probably most of the people have live bacteria in them. So it seemed that from the original pathologic definition of latent TB emerged a microbiologic definition and an immunologic definition. And now in 2019, if I go to a scientific meeting and people say, I'm going to talk about latent TB, it feels everybody in the room nods as if they know what we're talking about, but the different people in the room think we're actually talking about different things. Do you think the relative difference between the ease of doing a skin test and the complexity uh, of the microbiological testing, do you think that might go some way towards explaining why the, immuno the immunological test has become predominant in, in medicine and, I suppose, in the way that we're thinking as well? Yes, I think to a large extent the, um, the assays that we have in medicine um, help to define and quantify the problems that we aim to address. So if an assay is available, then that's the way we look. And if an assay is unavailable, then we say, well, sorry, I, I would like to have that, but I don't. So if somebody redefined latent TB as having um, uh, an asymptomatic person with a positive PET scan, then you'd have to ask, can we apply PET scans on billions of people around the world? And I think the simple answer is no. Uh, but you can apply tuberculin tests on billions of people around the world. 
So the uh, the availability of the test largely dictates what we can measure. So now you've presented this, mm -hmm. you have a, I suppose, I don't know, an anti-hypothesis here. Mm -hmm. um, in your analysis, what you've done is, is use the, as you, you mentioned earlier, populations of people who've become immunocompromised to sort of test this thinking out. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of immunological detail in there, which is probably best read, and, and it's mm -hmm. all in the paper for people to read online. But can you sort of tell us quickly, through mm -hmm. go through that, that sort of thought experiment? Yeah. You know, actually what we did was classical hypothesis testing, because you, could, you can formulate a hypothesis that those who are immunosuppressed are going to have very high rates of uh, developing TB if they are... Uh, skin test positive or EGRA positive, as in if they're TB immunoreactive. And you can set about asking if that hypothesis is correct. And it turns out that we basically disproved that hypothesis because we found that in multiple populations from all over the world, uh, people who had got various different kinds of immunocompromise uh, immunocompromised that is known to be um, a risk factor for TB. We found that the rates of development of TB in these, in these cohorts was actually pretty low. It was in the order of uh, 1 to 10 percent, depending on the study. Yes. And let me just step, step back because uh, before we looked at immunocompromised patients, we wanted to show that TB immunoreactivity did not track with the likelihood of disease. And we looked at several studies in which people had been treated for latent tuberculosis and found that those who had had a positive skin test for more than a year remain positive for as long as 10 years. So this showed to us that the skin test was not a good predictor of the viability of the organism in the body, that it represented simply immunologic memory of a distant event. The, the, the thought experiment you did to disprove the hypothesis using those those patients. So you mentioned already someone who might be kind of medicalized or have their immune system medically kind of reduced. But, you know, there are big populations where you've got a TB and an HIV co-infection mm -hmm. where this is happening in a, a place where maybe the burden of TB disease is higher, is that, have you looked in, in those populations to see if that sort of pattern is, is still there as well? Yeah, indeed we have. And, and um, there are, it's, it's a little harder to do in HIV infected populations because uh, obviously uh, people, they're not being monitored in quite the same way that uh, immunosuppressed, medically immunosuppressed cohorts are. But um, there are uh, a couple of studies that have assessed whether people who get, people with HIV who get active TB disease are getting the strain that they had originally or a new strain that is circulating 
in the population at that time. So is it latent or is it a new infection? A new infection. And it, 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 it makes complete sense that they would be susceptible to any to new infections since they're losing their uh, cell-mediated immunity. Mm. And it turns out that a, a large uh, proportion of the TB that these people are getting is from new infection. Uh, so studies that have actually uh, molecularly typed the strains that they're getting show that they are strains that are circulating in the population where they live at that time. Mm. So the HIV data very much are in line with the medical immunosuppression data. And and that is a, that is an analysis that we provide in 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 the in the paper. Mm. And and actually uh, one of our uh, colleagues, a TB researcher, uh, when, when we published the paper said, you know, uh, Wrote, wrote us a very nice email about it and said that his um, his view on latency had taken a knock already when he had read the HIV papers and found this was the case. So you know, there's been some cognizance about this uh, by by the smart people in the field already. Mm. And so we have this epidemiological data, I suppose, which is helping kind of put to bed this hypothesis. Uh, but the killer thing would be some medical biological data that, that did it already. Do we have a way at the moment of testing whether the immune response is because of, of an active ongoing infection, implying that, you know, the presence of the, the bug, or is it, uh, can we tell if it's a, a memory-based mm-hmm. immunological response? Mm-hmm. Well, there are several groups working on developing what are called biomarkers of infection that will progress to tuberculosis using anywhere from just a few to 10 or 20 different uh, biomarkers to be able to predict this. I think there's still a ways away from uh, uh, formulating this as a diagnostic test and from making it a test that's easy to administer um, that can be done in in areas where there's a lot of tuberculosis. Inexpensive, rapid, easy to perform by people with um, uh, laboratory training that uh, is basic. Mm-hmm. Will this change the way you practice, or maybe you change the way people would practice, do you think has an implication for, for clinical medicine at the moment? Not, not yet, because we don't have a good test that tells us who among the, the TB immunoreactive population are likely to develop disease. So the only thing that we have now are WHO and national guidelines for the preventive treatment of tuberculosis that are actually quite good based on what we know. The hope is that sometime in the near future, we'll have much better tests to be able to detect that subpopulation of people who will go on to develop disease, and therefore we'll be able to treat that subpopulation with specific therapy. Mm. And that could be an effective way of, of reducing then the instance of clinical disease. It, it could be, yes. Yes, certainly. 
although we have a lot of work to do on just finding all of those who have tuberculosis in the first place. I mean, it's estimated that in some cases, um, 30, 40% of people with tuberculosis are never diagnosed to begin with. And um, there are certainly many ways that you can use to enhance the capture of those people with active tuberculosis uh, so that they can be treated early to reduce the severity of their disease, as well as decreasing the transmission of the tuberculosis to others. So certainly, treatment of latent tuberculosis is a necessary tool, but in populations where the prevalence of tuberculosis is high, most of the emphasis will continue to be on finding those who have active tuberculosis and treating them. Mm. And, I mean, that seems actually like a, a good news story. Tuberculosis seems like this this huge burden that's almost too big to, to tackle. And mm -hmm. actually, this, the, this could be good. Um, we would talk a little bit about the epidemiology and your previous paper, uh, plus this one might mean that, you know, this pool of people who have latent tuberculosis or we think have latent tuberculosis is smaller than than estimates had. Um, you said something around like, what, 10%? Uh, exactly. So if, if only somewhere between 1 and 10% of all those who test positive actually have the infection, as suggested by the immunosuppression challenge studies that we've analyzed in this paper, then, then obviously the 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 pool the the at-risk pool drops by tenfold to fiftyfold to even a hundredfold. So you're starting to look at a problem that is uh, not two billion, but one-tenth to one-fiftieth to one-hundredth of two billion, which mm. is a much more manageable problem. Mm. But that two billion, which is the, mm -hmm. the big headline figure that you see everywhere for, for yes. um, potential burden of TB, that has a big implication for things like WHO priorities when it comes to funding and the way in which, you know, programs work within countries and things. I mean, you're your hypothesis here could have a big impact on on that side of it, the sort of economic side of, uh, of TB treatment. I think one of the, um, the messages which we hope comes through is this is good news, that if we perceive that we are confronted with a problem of two billion, we may say that this is just insurmountable. Uh, it's too big, it's too complicated, and we'll never even be able to get a start. And if we can recalibrate the problem and say, maybe this is a problem of 100 to 200 million, maybe it becomes more accessible, and maybe we can become more focused and say, how can we, how can we actually get to the 1 to 200 million and deliver the resources and the tools to the people who need it the most? So I would hope that there's a message of optimism 
In terms of what the tools are in 2019, we haven't changed those. So you still have to choose the same tools and you still have to apply them. But there is reason to believe that if you apply them in a, in a more targeted manner, you can make a lot of headway. And when it comes to funding priorities, it seems a lot of this hinges around getting a better test. Yeah. Uh, as we talked about, that is, is something that's kind of mm -hmm. on the horizon. But that should definitely be a, a focus for, for funding as well. Absolutely, yes. And that would be, I think, the main message of our analysis. And I think another message of the paper is that Time and again, understanding the natural history of a disease has proved to be uh, very important in in prevention, in disease prevention. How do you, you know, how do you how do you prevent a disease? Um, you can prevent a disease if you understand the disease, and that's uh, that's really our motivation in. In, 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 in taking up studies like this and uh, analyzing the, the very good data that already exists. Mm. You've been listening to Lalita Ramakrishnan, Paul Edelstein and Marcel Baer talk about their essay, Is Mycobacterium Tuberculosis Infection Lifelong? That's now available on bmj.com. I'll put the link in the podcast text. And there, I'll also put the links to their previous analysis and the other podcasts that we did with them. You can also find that podcast in our archive on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or bmj.com slash podcasts. There, you'll find hundreds of episodes, all available for free. So that's it for this episode. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.